I was telling Joe, I don't, I don't know what, uh, what kind of worship language of your heart. I'm a hymn guy. I don't know if you guys knew that. Any hymn people in the house? I told him, man, you start playing Come Thou Found. That's like my fight song. So I think you guys, uh, I'm riled up. I'm ready to rumble. It might just be that I, I drank a ton of coffee and haven't eaten anything too. So we don't know. Hey, well, this morning, uh, like uh, Pastor Scott said, we're going to start next week in this new sermon series in the book of James. Uh, James is an amazing book. If you enjoyed Hebrews, I think you're really going to love James. It's just this wonderful, wonderful book where you open it, and, and it's almost like you're, you're hearing these beautiful, wise words, but James does such a good job of connecting the dots into why does this matter for your everyday life? How many of you have ever thought, you know what, I, I love church, I love God, but sometimes I struggle, like, how does this affect my everyday life? James has a lot of those answers, and so I just want to encourage you to, to make it a point to, to come join us for the seven, six, seven, eight weeks, whatever it's going to be in the, the book of James. But this morning, we're actually going to be in the book of First Peter. I've been in the book of First Peter for well over a month now in preparation of our, our midweek service, and so... Here's the shameless plug. If you don't come to Wednesday Bible study, you should. It's at 6 o'clock on Wednesday nights. We gather around tables. Uh, somebody always is faithful to bring fried chicken or something unhealthy that's delicious. It's very laid back, kind of come and go as you please. We drink coffee, we banter with each other, and we just study the Bible. And so I want to encourage you to make a point of that. And we're going to be studying First Peter. And so I've been in First Peter for quite some time, and as I began to, to pray and think about this morning's message, I, I felt like God just kept telling me, go, go back to the well that you've been drinking from. And so we're going to be in First Peter chapter 1, and if you want to put your finger there, you can. We're just going to do our best to knock out the whole chapter this morning. But before we do, I want to tell you a story. It's a story that many of you know, and it's a story of a, a guy who's probably a, a late teenager, early 20. How many of you are a late teenager, an early 20, or you once were? Right here. <laughs> it's the story of this guy that we know in the Bible as Peter. You guys know Peter's story. Peter is a young, passionate, vibrant, brash, naive guy. Not overly intelligent, but a hard worker nonetheless. And he's fishing one day, and along the seashore comes this rabbi from Nazareth, and his name is... Okay, so most of you are still awake. And Jesus says, Peter, get out of the boat and follow me, and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. How many of you are like, wow, that is a high calling? How many of you are like, what on earth does fishing for people mean? And so Peter gets out of the boat. And in the gospel message, what we find about, out about Peter, and he is the butt of so many jokes, isn't he? That for chapter upon chapter, Peter shows up every single human reason why Jesus should not have picked him. Let me give you some examples. At one point, Peter proclaims, just like in this moment of clarity, he says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And then just a few verses later, Jesus looks Peter in the eyes and says, get behind me, Satan. This is who Peter is. Peter has a difficult time understanding what's happening. He's seen miracles happen, and then he just says and does stupid things. At one point, he tells these children, you got to get away from Jesus. He doesn't have time for you. Do you remember this? And Jesus says, what on earth are you talking about? Let the little children come to me. Peter follows Jesus for a couple of years, and you'd think that after a couple of years he'd figure it out, but on the night that Jesus is arrested, Peter still shows us that he doesn't get it. He whips out a sword and he lops a dude's ear off. 
And I just imagine Jesus looking at him like seriously as he bends down and picks up the ear and puts it back on, like, come on. Peter, Jesus' closest friend, claims that he's never going to deny him, and he denies him not once, not twice, but three times in the course of a couple hours. At Jesus' most devastating moment, being crucified on the cross, the Bible gives us this panorama of who's there, and guess who is not there? Peter. At the resurrection, Jesus has to go looking for Peter. And do you know what Peter did? He just went back to life as usual. He's found again in a fishing boat. Now I want to tell you all of that because the book of 1 Peter is written by Peter. Written by Peter decades later. The same Peter that I've just described to you. And, and I kind of want to just spoil the sermon. If, if you need to go to sleep, here's the, the takeaway. You can write it down. You can talk about it later. And then you can snooze off if that's what you need to do. No judgment here. If God can take that Peter that I just described and over the course of decades can transform his life into the guy who wrote the words we're about to read, they are not even close to the same human being if you just looked at them on paper, but they're the same person. And so here's the takeaway. If God can take Peter that I described to you and turn him into the Peter who writes the words we're going to read this morning, there is nobody in this room that God cannot take and transform and mold into something amazing and beautiful. Let me tell you this. This is not to be mean to Peter. We pile on him, but I'm going to keep piling on him. The material that God starts with called Peter is less than a lot of us here. Like God has more to work with with many of us here than he had with Peter. And look at what he does with Peter. God can use you no matter where you're at if you submit yourself to God. If you obey his word, if you lean into him when it's difficult, God will make something absolutely beautiful with you. And so 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 says this. We're going to kind of um, try to speed through the first half of this uh, chapter because I, I really want to land on some things in the second half, but I, I don't want to miss any verses, so let's just jump in. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Can you tell how I pronounce that last one that I have no idea how to say that word? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is what's happening. This letter is written to some Gentiles who have become followers of Jesus. And they're living in this area that's pretty far removed from the other kind of missionary movements of the New Testament. They're living in a place that the scholars call Asia Minor. And there's a lot of things we could say about Asia Minor, but this is not a, a history class. So this is what I want you to know. Asia Minor is very disconnected geographically from other Christians. Not only that, it's located in a place that is very comfortable with their pagan culture and rituals. These are, uh, this is a place that has temples to all sorts of gods. And so these people find themselves as Christians trying to live faithfully in a place that is dark and against them. Anybody relate to that? And Peter writes them and says this. He doesn't say, hey, your situation's not as bad as you say it is. Or, hey, perk up. It's going to be okay. This is what he says. To the elect exiles. He says, God chose you with a purpose. And what is your purpose? It is to be exiles. Does that sound strange to anybody else? 
The idea of an exile is you are living in a place that is not where you were meant to live. And I, I think we're going to land here this morning that I think that applies to us as well, that God didn't intend for followers of Jesus to live in sin and darkness. But despite all of that, he calls us to be light no matter where we are rooted at today. And so he says, your position where you are receiving backlash and you're receiving persecution is because God chose you to be there. There's a purpose for you to be there. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, even in your place of discomfort and persecution. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. If you're an underliner, you should underline living hope. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is what he's saying. He's saying that even in your current position where people are against you, even when people are persecuting you, even when you're uh, ready for a promotion and your boss skips you over because he knows that maybe you won't play ball because you're a follower of Jesus. He, he's saying there is a hope for you. You see that? But the hope is not a future hope. It is a living hope. That because Jesus is not dead, he is alive. The hope that you have in him is alive right here and right now. And your hope is not dependent on your circumstances that these people find themselves in a, a very challenging, difficult, dark place. And Peter says the hope that you have in Jesus doesn't depend on you getting out of that. It doesn't depend on you dying and going to heaven. It's a hope for you right here and right now. Is that good news? It's great news. And then not only that, he says you also have a future hope. Your future hope is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. That's verse 4. That is the inheritance of eternal life. I love this language because in the first century, the idea of an inheritance is a, is a pipe dream for 99% of people. An inheritance would be that you have some type of generational wealth in your family where you're going to receive gold or silver or land or crops or, or livestock or whatever it might be. It's, it's a safety blanket for your whole life. It guards you against poverty that's pushing in at all corners of the ancient world. The majority of people, they wake up, they go labor in the fields, they get paid just enough to buy enough food for one whole day, they burn the money, they feed their kids, and they go do it the next day. And Peter says, not only do you have a living hope right here and right now, you also have a future inheritance but your inheritance is not livestock, it's not crops, it's not the things he says are uh, perishable or fading. Your inheritance is in heaven and nobody can take that from you. So I, um, I was thinking this week about this message and I was thinking about some application points. And I feel like in the last few years this has become a theme every time I, I preach and I feel like it's something God has put on my heart to just speak over and over and over and it's this. I, I have a slide for it. It's, it's a question I think we have to ask ourselves when we read the Bible. Um, do we have the first slide up? It says, um, where are we? Are we in the promised land or are we in exile? And it seems like a really simple question, but I, I want to pose this to you. 
depending on where we think of ourselves at right here and right now, determines a whole lot about our behavior, does it not? If we see ourselves as people that are living in the promised land, and maybe in decades past, that would have been a temptation for us. Maybe we would have said, uh, you know what, this is one uh, country under God. There's prayer in schools. The majority of people, whether they go to church or not, we can assume that they know some things about the Bible or Christianity. How many of you lived through a time where that was true? Now, I am not disparaging that. I'm not saying that that's not, not a great thing in any way. What I'm saying is that can lull you into thinking that we're living in the promised land. And if you're living in the promised land, then faith and Christianity are awfully easy, aren't they? Because it doesn't cost you that much. But if you're living in exile and you think of yourself as, I'm living in a place that is maybe hostile or suspicious or weary of my Christian faith, then that will make you act a different way, won't it? And it will cost you something. It will cost you maybe a, a something subtle as like people who just think you're a little bit weird. Maybe it will cost you uh, argument or losing a relationship of people who just think like that is the most unscientific, stupid thing possible. Maybe it will cost you a, a promotion at work. Maybe it will cost you more. We look around the world and we hear kind of stories of mission movements on the front lines in cultures that are very dark and we find out this can cost you an awful lot. And so I think what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, what are we willing to pay? As our culture pushes in on us and in so many ways becomes darker, and not just darker, but sin not, not just becoming more prevalent, but also accepted and maybe even celebrated in some circumstances. What are we willing to pay to say, you know what? You can do what you will with me, but that's just not where I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand on God's word and God's word alone. For the sake of time, I'm going to um, keep going, and I think some of these things are going to kind of come to life. In this you rejoice, verse 6. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. He's saying that you rejoice in your trials and persecutions. Anybody want to say amen to that? He says that you rejoice, and here's why he says that. Because rejoicing is a choice that you make that is not dependent on your circumstances. That you don't have to look around and think like, man, when everything is going right, when I got money in the bank, when the sun is shining, when my family's around me and there's no conflict, then I'm really going to rejoice and praise God for it. What Peter is saying is, listen, you young followers of Jesus who find yourself in a place that is hostile to, towards your faith, your circumstances do not determine that you can rejoice. And this is what he says. We're going to circle back to this in a second. He says, you rejoice because your trials are actually just a test for the genuineness of your faith. How cool is that? He goes on in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's talking about Jesus. That even though he's not standing in your midst, you believe so strongly in him and what he has accomplished on the cross that he might as well be. And I love that because who's writing this letter? Peter. 
I just wonder, I wonder what is flooding through Peter's mind saying, although Jesus is not there with you, I wonder what memories are coming back because it turns out Peter stood right with Jesus, didn't he? And so here's a question that I have. You know, I was um, thinking, and one of my favorite quotes comes from one of those most powerful men that ever walked the planet, the former heavyweight champ, Mike Tyson. Some of you know this quote. Uh, Mike Tyson was asked uh, as he began to kind of like build a, a, a fight log, like he was doing a lot of boxing matches and he had, he had been winning and people were asking him like, okay, well now that they can see your strategy, what are you going to do that now that they can prepare for you? Do you guys know what he said? He said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. I think this is what Peter wants us to know, is that you're going to get punched in the face, as silly as that sounds. That Christian faith does not just promise that, man, I'm so glad I accepted Jesus. Ever since I have, life has been so easy. It's been so paved and straight and broad. It's the exact opposite, isn't it? That sometimes you get into these trial times in your life and you're like, I, I believe in you, Jesus, and I, I b believe that you can get me through this, but where are you? Anybody ever been in a position like that? Everyone has a plan that we can say, oh, God, no matter what, like Peter, I will never, ever reject you. Remember when Peter said that? Do you think he meant it when he said it? I think he meant it when he said it too. And then he got punched in the face. Because it cost him something. Some people around him and he realized, whoa, if I associate myself with this guy, I might end up like him. And what was his choice? Don't know him. We can say and we can come to a place where we say, oh, I believe God's word to be true. When things get tough, I'm going to lean on it. Man, when things get tough, I'm going to really settle down. I'm really going to pray, and God will carry me through. We can say all of those things, but when the trials come, we begin to see what the true tests are. You know, I've been um, following this trend, and I, I read articles about it. Sometimes it's in you know, publications like Christianity Today, and sometimes it's in the New York Times. Many of you know this, but church attendance in the United States is on the decline very rapidly. Did you know that? And you know what, it's interesting what slant people take on this. There's some people who are just absolutely devastated. And, and frankly, I, I feel like, man, that's, that hurts my heart. But I also know a story that a lot of people writing about this don't know. And the story is this, that the Bible is full of these instances where Jesus says, listen, there will become testing. There will be testing on the horizon. And when it comes, you will be pruned that's cutting back, and what happens when you cut back? Does it wound the tree? Yes, it wounds the tree. And it takes a few harvest cycles, but what ends up happening? The tree grows stronger and stronger, and over time it produces more fruit. This is what I know. I know that the culture has made church attendance seem like a, a poor idea and a bad thing. Would you agree? Because it costs you something. How many of you can say, I have friends in my life that if I told them, hey, I spent all day Sunday at church, they would be like, man, what a waste of time. How many of you know people like that? Yeah. Because it costs you something. But let me tell you something. I believe wholeheartedly is that as church attendance declines and it costs you more and more and more to be here socially, economically, whatever it will be, I believe wholeheartedly that God is 
pruning the plant so that it can just become stronger. What is happening? The people who remain in pews across the country are people who are like, whatever the cost is, I'll be there. And the harder it gets, the more people that are, that are saying, no matter what happens, I'm going. I'm going to worship Jesus. And what is happening? It's concentrating Christian faith. You guys know this is like marker number one of revival movements, that God concentrates the people that are like, no matter what happens, you can fire me. On the front lines of missions movements, you can whip me, you can kill me. I'm not saying no. This is Stephen saying, you can do whatever you want to me. They stone him to death, and as they're stoning, he's just pronouncing forgiveness upon the guy who just threw the stone. And so I have this question for us, and I think it's a good start. It's how do we frame our trials? How many of you have gone through a trial before? Oh, a few of you are in good company. You should do a support group after this. <laughs> it's how we frame our trials matters, and I think we know people on both ends of the extreme. I know people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm just following Jesus. I'm just getting crushed by the weight of it, but I'm going to remain faithful no matter what. You guys know those Eeyores? Some of you are those Eeyores. Sometimes I'm the Eeyore. And you know what I'm talking about? People moping around, it's so difficult to follow Jesus. I'm just getting crushed under the weight of all these trials, but I'm going to persevere. And I'm not saying that you are that. I'm saying we all sometimes are that. Would you agree? Peter says this to these people who are struggling with this very problem. He's saying, listen, you have a choice to rejoice in your trials and to reframe your trials as this. You ready? As a test of genuineness. Your trial can be reframed as, hmm, God, I, I've never been through anything like this before. I don't know how you're going to get me through, but I, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do my best to put one foot in front of the other. I'm going to walk it out the best I know how. I'm going to keep my eyes on you the best I know how, and I'm going to trust you. And this is an opportunity to see how strong my faith is. You see the difference? It's the same trial. It's the same circumstance. And Peter says, depending on how you see it, it's going to shape in you a certain type of person that can deal with it for the long haul. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets... <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't read that. You know, um, never mind. This, never mind. Not, not the place. Not the place. I was going to say something that I, well, I'll just tell you. Because I, I, I won't be able to get it off my mind until I say it out loud. Um, you know, Mike Tyson speaks in a certain way. I just read, concerning the salvation. That's what I just thought of in my mind. Let me reset. <sighs> okay. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Anybody confused yet? Just dense. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels look. I don't want to go into detail because I don't know the details. I just know the basics of this part. This is what Peter is saying. For generations, prophets had sought after the Lord and they had, they had begged God, when is the Messiah coming? Send the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? What's he going to be like? Where is he going to come from? When, he's going to, when is he going to come? You know that first two-thirds or three-quarters of your whole Bible is that. Um, 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah, these prophets are, are pleading with God to send the Messiah, and they want to know the details. And so, depending on what book of the Bible, we get these little snapshots. We get little snapshots that the Messiah is going to be a suffering servant. We get this idea that for some reason the, the Messiah is going to come into kind of obscurity in a little town of Bethlehem. We know that his lineage is going to be from the lineage of David, and we start piecing this puzzle together. Peter says, all that work that they had done to spiritually seek after the Lord is actually for you because you're living in the time of the Messiah. He already came. All the things that they hoped for, all the things they longed for, you are living into. And he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, you have seen things that angels wish they could see. Is that awesome? And so he's setting up this foundation for who Jesus is, that despite your circumstances, it's, it's not an excuse to say it's not as bad as you think it is. It might be very bad. You guys know that throughout the Bible, people get hung, whipped, crucified, stoned to death. That really happens. Do you know that in certain parts of the world, those things still really happen? The Bible is not saying, nah, it's not as bad as you think it is. That's not the message of the Bible. The Bible is, it might be as bad as you think it is. It might even be worse than you think it is. But you have a choice to rejoice in it and to proclaim that no matter what is done to me, Jesus is greater and I will put my trust in him. That is the argument. And then at verse 13, this is where Peter switches gears. And now he says, I I've told you everything I want you to, to know. And now I want you to begin to, to kind of put the building blocks together and live it out. Are you ready for this? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the re revelation of Jesus Christ. Anybody have a different version that says something a little bit different than that? Nobody? Everybody's just on their phone? Any good football scores going on? I can see everything from up here. There's at least one of you looking at it, and I'm familiar with fantasy football, so I know at least one of you just looked at it. No names, baby. This is one of the funniest verses in the entire Bible to me in English, because this is what it literally says in Greek, and I think like King James might have it this way or a variation of it. It literally says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. I, nobody else finds that funny? I, I think... Um, I think like a street evangelism course would be like, hey, this is the verse we're going to go after people with. Hey, did you know God called you to gird up the loins of your mind? That might just be a good way to go about it. Like, what on earth does that mean? So what on earth does that mean? This is what Peter is saying. Gird up the loins of your mind is step one towards living out everything that we've just talked about. What does that mean? In the ancient world, people wore like a tunic and a robe, and it restricted their knee movement. They weren't overly agile or athletic wearing those robes. And so what people would do, and the, the phrase gird up your loins, is to grab the front and to tuck it into your belt so that your knees are free. Does that make sense to everyone? And once your knees are free, you are ready to react, to work hard, to run, to be uh, athletic in posture, whatever it might be. You're ready for action when you gird up your loins. And this is what Peter says. The first thing I want you to do is gird up the loins of your I want you to prepare your mind for the action that's to come. 
your mind is going to lead you in a way that prepares you for the action that's going to come. Some of the action is going to be glorious and beautiful. Some of it's going to be devastating, persecution and challenges and trials. But it begins in your mind. And he says this, you need to be sober-minded. I think in Greek this is literally what it means. All the stuff that clouds your mind and gets in the way of your focus on Jesus as your living hope, it's got to go. And sometimes we say this like, it's got to go, and we think like, oh gosh, I'm having a hard time getting it out and letting go. How many of you would say like, that sounds great, how do you do that? I want to tell you that so many of these things we say, and we just say like, you just got to get rid of it. And if you're sitting there thinking, that's so much harder to do than to say, you're right. The challenge is, is to wake up every morning and submit yourself to God and to say, God, I'm going to blow it throughout the day. I'm going to blow it minute by minute. But I'm also going to have some victories because I'm going to invite you into it. And when I look back in time, I'm just going to trust that I'm going to be better off than I was before. I said this the last time I preached. If you look back in your Christian faith five years ago, you should see improvements in real everyday life. I, I feel like the fruit of the Spirit is a good way to see that in your life. So he says, sober-minded. You've got to clear the decks of your mind. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So what do you set your mind fully on? On God's grace. Why? Because you're going to blow it. You guys know that? You guys know that there are people who pre pretend like they never blow it? You know that? They're all pretenders. There's none of them. The Bible is clear. There is not even one. And so I think what Peter is saying is this. I was just um, playing a game with my son, and I wrote this illustration. Um, my son, who's now four, which blows my mind. Um, but I, he wanted to play ninjas. And I was uh, thinking about this, and I thought, I think what Peter's calling us to be is to prepare our minds to be spiritual ninjas, to be able to do cool ninja stuff spiritually. And it begins in our minds. And so he speaks to our minds before he talks about our, our kind of hands and our feet actions. So how do we prepare our minds for spiritual action? That's a question I have for you. How do we prepare our minds for spiritual action? And I came up with this. I rarely come up with things that rhyme and sound cool, but I'm very proud of myself, so pray for my pride. But I actually came up with this on my own. Do we deliberate or do we procrastinate? This word deliberate is a, a word that's often used in like court cases. You've heard it before, like the jury has to go deliberate. I looked it up, and here's the literal definition. To deliberate is to engage in long, careful, intentional consideration or preparation. Let me read it one more time. To deliberate is to engage in long, careful, intentional consideration or preparation. How many of you are procrastinators and you know it? There are certain areas of my life where I am very disciplined and very deliberate, and then the other half of my life is very procrastination. This is a procrastination station sometimes. When you procrastinate, what happens to you when you have to react to something? You come up with this mindset like, I'm going to figure it out in the moment, you know? I'm going to react and I'm just going to trust that I can figure it out when the time comes. You know what I'm talking about? This is the exact opposite of what Peter is telling us that spiritually God wants to do in us. Let me give you a, a tangible example that might be a few weeks late. Let's say you have some family that you see from time to time and they're going to come into town for the holidays. You could write this down for next Christmas. I, I wish I had this illustration for you three weeks ago. But they're coming into town 
And you got a cousin or a sibling that every time you come together, you just totally ignore each other or, or because you know that if you come together, there's going to be conflict. Anybody have like a family with like a little bit of an issue going on? Nobody? Or you know there's going to be conflict where you're going to grind on each other and you just know it's going to happen. And, and I'm going to be honest, this is my tendency to begin to dread it. How many of you are beginning to dread it? A few days before people come, you're starting to dread it. Oh, geez, I hope we don't have one of those interactions. I hope it doesn't grind. I hope it doesn't ruin the vibe. You know, you got to protect the vibes. <laughs> and you know, but you procrastinate. And so you're trusting that oh, when that person comes and we run into each other at the family buffet line and I'm getting irritated, I'm just going to figure it out in the moment. How many of you, that's your go-to? That has been my go-to for decades, and I feel like this is what God is rooting out of me. Because the opposite would be to, to be deliberate. And it would say, listen, there is someone or someone's coming into my sphere this holiday season. Again, this is for Christmas 2023. You're welcome. Preparing you early. And they're coming... And there is always conflict. And even when there's not, I can feel something welling up in me that makes me hot in the cheeks. I'm irritated. I'm angry. Maybe I've been watching them on Instagram post all their stuff, and it irritates me. And I'm going to see them in real life, and I'm going to think things and feel things. But you want to act deliberately, and you can say, God, they've confirmed they're coming. I want to get in your word, but I want to do it intentionally. I want to do it deliberately. I want to do it carefully, and I want to do it submitting myself to, is there something you want to do in that relationship? Maybe there's a perspective I'm not seeing, and maybe I'm in the wrong. Maybe it's not just me seeing a wrong in someone else, but maybe it's a two-way street. And you begin to pray into it. You begin to draw people that you trust into it. And when that interaction happens, guess what? It's not always fixed immediately, but what God can do is you can begin to see, oh, I, I'm clearly connecting the dots, and I'm on like step three or four that I never would have gotten to had I just procrastinated. So I think what Peter is saying is that we are called spiritually to be deliberate, and we start with our minds. We prepare our minds, and how do we do it? We gather together and worship. We study God's word. We pray. We get into intentional conversations on purpose with a purpose. And we allow God to begin to shape in us people who are prepared spiritually to react to people in ways that God would react to people. We're going to learn a little bit more about that. So let's keep reading. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How many of you feel like the word holy and being called to be holy like God is holy is intimidating? You know, I read that word, and, and I know what the word means, and I can study the word, but there's something about it, and this is not to be mean or anything, but it just sounds so King Jamesy to me. Like you're called to be holy. Like, wow, that's so heavy duty. But guess what? It doesn't matter what we feel like or what we think this means, because whether we like it or not, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be holy. So what does holiness mean? You know, the, the quick definition is that something holy is set apart for a purpose. In, in Christian circles, that usually means that you are set apart for the purpose of serving God. Have you heard that definition before? 
I want to offer you kind of a, a 1B definition that I, I think might get to the root of some of what Peter is saying. I would say that holiness at its core is you being willing, you and me, by the way, I don't have this down, is being willing to say, God, I want to live into the person you created me to be. Let me explain. Uh, if we could kind of go down like a little bit of a, a theological rabbit hole, this is where I'm coming from. You and me are created in God's image. And because we're created in God's image, we are created to be like God. Not to be God, not to compete with God, but to be like him in the way that we love others and the way that we look at the world and say like, no, that's sin and that's good. We're, we're meant to be like God in that if we live into who God created us to be. The way we do that is we submit ourselves to God. And we say, God, I'm made in your image, but I also live in a sinful world and I'm a sinful person. And so I have to intentionally obey. I have to intentionally submit myself to you every single day. And as you do, God begins to create in you a person that starts to look more and more like him. You ever met somebody who's been following Jesus for decades? Not just says it, but like clearly you watch them and they really are doing it. And sometimes you watch them and you think, that's exactly what Jesus would do. The way that you talk, the way that you listen, the way that you react, that is the love and the grace of Jesus in you. Why? Because you're living out the image of God in you. And that's what holiness is. Because God created us to live out the image. And when we do, we are set apart. We are very different from the world, aren't we? And so we become set apart. And I think what God is saying is that this is not just a heavy-handed thing that somehow you should be terrified and you got to go figure out how to be holy and you need to come up with your checklist of what I'm allowed to do, what I'm not allowed to do. It's that you submit yourself to God and you allow God to do deep work in you. And so here's a question that I have. And I use the pronoun we, and that's usually how I protect myself from being vulnerable enough to say that this is for me. Do you want to live a holy life or not? Or do you fall prey to the I'm not as bad as blank thinking? Let me explain. How many of you know that humans struggle with comparison? I think when it comes to holiness, there is this deep temptation to do something that looks like this. I'm a little unsure about holiness. That sounds pretty heavy duty. And I don't know that I really need that because when I go to church, I look around and I've created in my mind this kind of like spiritual hierarchy and I'm not at the bottom. I'm doing better than that guy, right? So I can't be that bad. Maybe holiness is something that God wants for that guy, but I must be doing fine. And so we begin to compare ourselves and we start to think that somehow the way that we're going to be judged is based on how we're doing compared to somebody else. And I think that totally misses the point because the point is not how do you stack up to other people, it's how do you stack up to God's standard of holiness and he's calling you to holiness. And that's a lot to say. The culture doesn't like that kind of talk, do they? Because that, that includes like accountability. It includes things that are right and things that are wrong. It includes drawing lines that say that's just not who we are and what we do. And that's not inclusive or welcoming in a lot of circles. And we're going to talk about that too because that has a huge place and Peter thinks so too. But I think we have to ask this question, do we want to live holy lives or do we not? I've shared this story before, but one of the, the greatest turning points in my Christian faith happened, I, I think I was either 20 or 21. 
I had a, been a Christian at that point for about four years of my life, and um, I feel like I was hitting a wall. And I was reading, uh, not First Peter, but I was reading this call to be holy, and I, I set up a meeting with, at the time, um, somebody who was my mentor, my academic advisor. His name was um, Dr. Robert Smith. And I remember him asking me, well, do you want to be holy? Do you want to be set apart? Do you want to go into the ministry and submit yourself to that? And I looked at him and I said, if I'm honest, I don't know. And I remember what he said to me, and I, I think these words are as true to you as they were to me that day. Well, you could just pray that God would give you the desire to want to. And you could just pray, God, I want to want to. God is not below that prayer. God is not below the prayer. God, I'm not sure I want holiness, but I want to want it. And just pray, God, I want to want holiness. And that seems like such a, a simple juvenile prayer, but it's not at all. God loves that prayer because it's honest and it's rooted in what God wants for you. You could say that, God, I'm not sure I want to live that life, but I want to want to. And you could just pray that. For me, that changed so much of my prayer life. It changed so much of the trajectory of you don't have to pretend you got it all figured out. You can walk it out and just trust that God is going to fill in the gaps for you. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was uh, made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I, I was studying this chunk this week, and one of the things I learned, this is just a freebie, this is one of the longest single sentences in the whole Bible. That's one single sentence. Peter, you'll recall, was a fisherman, not, uh, not grammar police, so I, I think he has some room to grow in his um, run-on sentences, but that's not why we're here. I want to point out a couple things. The first thing Peter says, look, God is your father, and you should approach him as a father, but you have to understand that a good father will not just let you do whatever you want and have it go undisciplined. Sometimes we think of God as unpunished. I think the Bible doesn't talk a lot in the New Testament about God punishing. I think God talks about disciplining, and it's a subtle difference. But discipline is done to your children because you want to create in them, you want to set them on a different course so that their life will not continue going the way that they're going. You know what I'm talking about. So discipline, it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's nasty, but it's for the good of someone else. I think what Peter says is, listen, don't fall prey to thinking just because God is your father, he's going to overlook sinful behavior and unholiness. He will discipline you if you submit yourself to him. And he says, conduct yourselves with fear. This idea of fear, I, I think, in the Bible uh, sometimes confuses us because we think, like, God is so powerful. If, I, if I'm not totally freaked out and scared by him, he might, like, strike me with lightning and I, I might get, like, smited. Such a strong Old Testament word. But I think the concept is, is not that. It's this reverence and awe of who God is, that God is the one who bears the standard for judgment. And that as you submit yourself to him, you do so because you love him. 
you love him and you're learning to love him with your whole heart because you know he loves you with his whole heart. And when you disappoint him, you recognize like, oh, that hurts me. And so you come before him with reverent awe that that disappoints God and that breaks his heart and it breaks mine. He's not out to smite me or punish me. He's out to discipline me so that I can become the person he created me to be. The last thing that I, I love, this is something that Peter knows really well. He says, uh, you were ransomed, this is verse 18, if we could put it on the screen. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Here's the thing. The idea of ransom in the ancient world is literally buying yourself out of a sticky situation. It, it's the idea of buying somebody back, of somebody being purchased back from a really bad situation or a bad decision. And what Peter is talking about is your you're living into sin and darkness, God purchased you back with his blood. And I love what he says. He says, it's not with silver or gold. And I think he says that because in the ancient world, there were a select few people that had enough wealth amassed that they could literally do whatever they want and they could buy themselves out of it. Did you know that? Back in the day, like a long time ago, politics and bureaucracies were corrupt. So it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, but that's how it used to work. <laughs> And so if you were the child of somebody well-to-do and you made a big mistake, guess what? Enough silver and enough gold could buy you right out of that. Well, where does that leave the 99% of people who don't have anything? It leaves them in the ditch. But Peter says, listen, you've been ransomed from your sin and it has nothing to do with your status in the world. It has everything to do with God. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. But he ransomed you back from what you deserved. And he did it with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. And he was foreknown from the foundation of the world. I think what Peter is wanting these people to know is, listen, this is not some new age religion that was just invented. Jesus didn't just show up on the scene and we're like, oh yeah, he's starting to show like he's God. Yeah, I think he's God. Jesus was there from the foundation of the world. This is not a contingency plan. This is not God's plan B. This was the plan from the beginning. And you're living into something that is super historically uh, rooted. I think there was probably pushback in the ancient world against Christians of, oh, this thing is just invented. You're just following this guy that was invented like a couple decades ago. And Peter is saying that is not true at all. Jesus was there at creation. This was God's plan from the foundation. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly or sisterly love. This is the familial love, the love that, uh, that gives grace and accepts people for who they are. Love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. I want to say two things that I think are really important. If you're still with me, I, I, I hope that you'll hear this. The idea of purifying your souls and living a pure life. How many of you have been around Christian circles enough to know that there is a culture within Christianity and it is the purity culture? You guys know what I'm talking about. I want to just speak to the purity culture a bit because I think there are some things the purity culture got right and some things the purity culture got really wrong. 
The purity culture is primarily rooted in abstaining from certain things. So we hear uh, purity culture, we might think like, oh, to be pure, we're supposed to abstain from alcohol, or we're supposed to abstain from premarital sex, or whatever these things. You guys following with me? And so it primarily starts to uh, take root in our mind that to be pure is all about not doing things that I, I got to tiptoe and I got to be careful. And sometimes there's, especially like in youth ministry, I did that for like over a decade, there's, there's these ideas of teenagers who want to live pure lives and then they're like tiptoeing on thin ice and they feel like they're breaking through and then they're terrified, like, oh no, I blew it forever. And I want to tell you, the Bible is clear that we are to abstain from certain things. There's no way around that. But I think what Peter would say is that purity culture is not about abstaining from certain things. It's about doing the beautiful things that God has for you. It's about living a life face forward, going full speed ahead, pursuing God, and you become pure. How do you do it? By obedience to the truth, that you live your life in an obedient way. You're not tiptoeing saying like, oh, I hope this step doesn't break the ice and I, I really make God angry on this one. It's, I got this in one hand, as the theologian Karl Barth said, and I got the newspaper in the other, and I'm reading the newspaper through the Bible, and I'm interpreting the world through God's word, and I'm understanding how the world is operating, and sometimes I'm going to blow it, but I trust that God is graceful, and I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm going to recognize it's sin, I'm going to repent of it, and I'm going to trust that God's going to do something in me. And what Peter says is, you'll become pure. You will purify your soul by obedience to the truth. And then he says this, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. I want to say something super, super brilliant, which is how you know I didn't come up with this. Um, and I, I stayed up really late last night. I was really trying to track down where I heard this. I was listening to some sermon snippets, and I, I could not find the, the guy, and I can't remember his name. So if he ever saw this on YouTube, I just want to say this is not my words. This is another guy's words, and I can't remember his name. But what Peter has done is he has told us two things that we need to begin to do in order to live out the world, uh, live in the world of exile. He has said the first thing we need to do is live holy as God is holy. So on one hand, we are to be holy. On the other hand, he says that we are supposed to love one another with this welcoming, warmth, and accepting love. You got the two? This guy I was listening to, he said, listen, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that humans have a hard time holding these two things in balance, that they're constantly in conflict with one another. And we all have experiences, or at least we've heard of these sorts of things, because there are Christian communities that emphasize one over the other, and it gets out of whack. Would you agree? Let me give you some examples. A community that is all about the brotherly love, 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 is a place that people feel welcome. They feel warmth. They feel acceptance. But it's also a community that has no accountability. It's a community that doesn't want to offend anybody by talking about sin or calling out darkness where they see it. It becomes a, a culture where as you read the Bible, you may have noticed there's maybe denominations or movements that kind of selectively translate certain verses a certain way or just skip over them altogether so they don't have to touch on them. And so it becomes about love, 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 accept, 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 but without any account accountability or willingness to say that's just sin, there's no way around it. Are you following with me? But the opposite can also be true where we're like, we are a holiness church. 
And a holiness culture is heavy-handed. It's good at recognizing sin where it sees it, and it's good at being confrontational, a way of saying, like, hey, I love you too much to let you continue living in this. But it can become heavy-handed. It can become demanding. It can become legalistic. It can become the place where the secret Christian police are out to get you. Self-righteous, maybe exclusionary, people feeling like I would not be welcome with people like that. Have you ever experienced that before? And Peter just told these people living in exile as if they don't have enough to worry about that you should be both these things at once. This is a hard thing to do. And in fact, I would argue it will be literally impossible to do if we set our minds to it and just say, you know what, we're going to be so fully loving and so fully holy. The only way that we can do this is to submit ourselves to God and trust that the Spirit will work in us. Every single one of us has a penchant, I feel like, to walk this line and lean towards holiness or lean towards love. Would you agree? Only by the power and the grace of the Spirit can we say, you know what, God? I need some work in holiness. I, I am very accepting, and it's turned into me accepting my own sin and justifying it. Or maybe... God, I, I need some help and love because I, I can recognize sin and broken things, but I am, I am not a warm, welcoming, hospitable person. And I feel like that is the, the work of each individual believer to say, I'm going to trust that God can do that in me. And when we come together, we become a place where people feel welcome, they feel warm, but they also know that, that sin is not a, just something that's going to be welcome in the church community. This is where I want to end today. Well, it's not where I want to end. It's where Peter ended, so natural ending. Verse 24. For all flesh is like the grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. This is what he's saying. He's saying that as we live our lives, whether we like it or not, we're going to depend on something. And you have a choice to make. You can depend on the Word of God, which sometimes is confusing, and sometimes you're not 100% sure what to do, but you just say, you know what? I'm going to walk it out because God has been faithful, and I'm going to trust that God's Word is what it says it's, it is, and I'm just, I'm just going to be obedient. I'm not saying you just read it and just blindly trust anybody who tells you what it means. I think that's why we come together as a community. It's why it's important you hear sermons from different people. But we're pursuing what does this mean and how do we live it out? Are you going to trust that or are you going to depend on, as the Bible says, your flesh? Your flesh is um, it's all of your abilities and skills. It's your characteristics. It's your personality. It's your bank account, it's your family unit, it's your security. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad in and of themselves. It's are you going to trust those things to carry you through life, or are you going to trust God's word? And here's the illustration, and Peter used it brilliantly. It's if you take a snapshot of all the things of your flesh, and you take a snapshot at the very perfect time, the time where everything comes together in perfect unity, where your marriage is like just like awesome, your bank account is full, your kids are behaving, and everything is coming together, you could take a snapshot, and it is a beautiful flower of the field. But if you took a video of it, and you push play, that flower, even the most beautiful flower you've ever seen, is going to dry out, it's going to die, fall to the ground, turn to dust, and blow away in the wind. So he says, will you trust your flesh, which is a flower that falls, or will you trust the word of the Lord that remains forever? 
He says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the good news of Jesus. So I have one final thought for you. It's what are you depending on to carry you through? Is it your flesh or is it God's word? I want to wrap up with uh, one final thing before we pray together and dismiss. The words that we just read were written by a man who was called out of a boat when he was a teenager or a young 20, and he was a miserable failure in so many ways. I don't know who you are or what you're about, most of you right this second, but I feel like God is connecting dots, and the, the reason I feel like God was drawing my uh, attention to that line in the song that there are lies that we believe is because I think a lot of us see Peter and we just think, I'm Peter. And I'm a failure, and I'd probably draw a sword and chop somebody's ear off, and I'd probably get it wrong, and I'd probably deny Jesus if the cost was too great. And you might. But here's the good news, is that even if you did, God is not done with you. Even if you feel like, I'm 50, 60 years old, I've just blown it my whole life, I stink. God's not done with you. God took that guy and he wrote the words we just read. Are those brilliant, wise words? Are they words that literally meant life or death to these people who heard them and decided, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. I'm encouraged. I'm uplifted. And so I want to tell you, no matter where you find yourself today, you can start submitting yourself to God right here and right now. And as the days go by, you will realize, wow, I, I can't believe the amount of wisdom coming out of me. And it's not you, it's God. It's God working in you. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive, that our hope is a living hope. And it's not living because we're really great at what we do. It's living because Jesus is alive. And we can trust in that life. Every day we can submit ourselves to you. God, thank you. We submit ourselves to you. We ask that you would help us discern what it would look like for us to walk in perfect balance of love and holiness. We pray against self-pity and, and the temptation to think that we're less than or not good enough. We also pray against pride of thinking that we're better than or we're good enough. And God, we want to live as your image bearers in the world. We want to reflect you to our coworkers. We want to be beacons of light in our family units. And so, God, I, I pray that we would be people who are deliberate in our actions, that we would set aside time every day to be connected with you, that we would pray, as the Bible says, without ceasing. We would just be in this ongoing dialogue with you. And, God, I pray that you would just bring uh, situations, instances, opportunities for us to witness, not in a, a creepy, heavy-handed way, but in a natural way that comes flowing out of our relationship with you. Thank you for this church, God. Thank you for the ways that this place is a place that just supports so many people that have grown in their faith. We pray that we would never, ever, ever compromise. We love you. We give you this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.